today, Mark chapter 11, <clears throat> verse 12, a message I call a curse and a promise. Now, we're not going to get to the promise today. I'm sorry. I worked real hard to try to pack it all in uh, to one message so I didn't have to just wrap it up on the curse part, but we could get to the promise part. I'll try to show it to you a little bit, uh, but that'll be for next week. Um, for today, we're going to look at this curse and a promise, the first part of it. Mark chapter 11, verse 12. Now, the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So they came to Jerusalem. And then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seat of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Preaching through Mark's gospel on Sunday morning, it, uh, we have done so under the heading of meeting our needs in these dangerous and uncertain times, in a world that's growing more and more dangerous by the moment. In these times, we need to reacquaint ourselves to focus on who Jesus is, on what He did and what He said, what He has taught us to do, and how He intends for us to live. Literally everything about the life that we now live, everything about the eternity we anticipate, is rooted in the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus is doing and what He is going to do. Everything about our lives. Because you see, folks, we are believers in Jesus Christ. We are followers, disciples of Jesus Christ. That's not somewhere down the list. That is right at the top of who we are. We are believers in Jesus Christ and followers of Him and His teaching. It doesn't make us perfect. It doesn't make us sinless. It just means that this is who we are. Our whole identity then is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. Nothing is more relevant to us than the work of Jesus Christ, what He did, what He is doing and what He's going to do, and how He teaches us to live. It's the most important thing of all. I understand it gets a little bit in our wheelhouse sometimes. You might be inclined to say, well, preacher, you done quit preaching and went to meddling. It's okay. I'm not the one doing the meddling. Our Lord Jesus is. We're looking at His life, His words, His teachings. Mark chapter 11 and verse 11, we saw this last week. Jesus went into Jerusalem, into the temple. So when He had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, He went out to Bethany with the twelve. So all of those events of Palm Sunday led up to that time when Jesus went into the temple. All the hosannas, all the palm branches, all the folks throwing their garments down, everybody, all the, everything we saw led up to that point 
They're in the temple. Jesus looked around and walked out. He looked around and he left. The temple was filled with people who were worshiping him, praying to him, seeking forgiveness of sins from him. This is the God-man, the Son of God. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto Himself. But Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, looked around and left. All the appearances were there. All the ornaments were there. The ritual was there. Priests were making sacrifices. People were going through their ritualistic cleansing times. It was a high and holy place at the highest and holiest of all times, Passover. The only thing that even comes close to it in our minds would be to think of Easter Sunday, which, by the way, just coincides with Passover, by the way. And as Passover was their highest and holy time, so also it is for us. I mean, the house will be packed, everybody will be all dressed up, and everybody will be excited, and we'll fill the house with our praises and worship. Everything. I mean, it is the highest and the holiest time. Jesus looked around and left. Imagine Jesus walking into a church. Imagine him walking into this church. Taking a look around. And leaving. Mark very obviously joined all these things together. You see with the truth that we have in our passage today. The the cursing of the fig tree, all of this. Palm Sunday has happened. Jesus came in, He went to the temple, He left and He went back to Bethany. Now it's Monday. It's Monday. Friday's coming. Sunday. Sunday is coming. One week. Four days. It's Monday. And on this day, Mark calls our attention to this curse and the promise. Mark's gospel has sped through years and months of Jesus' life, but he obviously puts the brakes on as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He's drawing very careful attention because these days and these messages were then and are today saturated with significance. So Jesus gets up there that morning. He heads to Jerusalem. The Bible says, verse 12 in our text, we've already read it. He saw the fig tree from afar having leaves. And he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, Mark says, because it was not the season for for figs. This is what we're going to call for our purposes today the symbolic curse. This is a a symbol. The fig tree, you see, was a symbol of what Jesus was going to find in the temple. We have to know because Jesus was God, the Son of God. When he sees that fig tree over there, (coughs) Mark says, well, we're going to go over there and see if there's something on it. It had leaves. There could be figs. (coughs) But Jesus knew there was no figs there. Wasn't a surprise to him. 
So taking the disciples over there was one of those teaching moments where Jesus gathered everybody together. And he gathered them around and it was leaves on the tree but no figs. Now the figs in Palestine were well known for actually putting on figs before they put on their leaves. So the fact that even though it wasn't the time for figs, it was too early, the fact that this tree had leaves on it would have in it then some promise that there might be something there that was edible. And since it wasn't the time for figs, that's Mark's way of telling us this was an unusual thing. It was kind of like when Moses saw the burning bush over there. He saw it afar off and he said, hey, that thing is burning, but it's not burning up. Well, this is something similar to that. It's a fig tree with leaves at a time when it wasn't supposed to have leaves. It just stood out. You say, why did it have leaves when it wasn't time for it to have figs? Well, if you wanted to believe that Jesus Christ arranged the whole thing, I won't argue the point with you. Uh, all we know is, is that it was not the time normally for a fig tree to have leaves on it. If it had leaves on it, it should have figs, but it was out of season. This wasn't a late bloomer, it was an early bloomer, way, way early. It already had leaves, it should have had figs, it had nothing. It had all the appearance of fruit, that's the point. It gave off the promise of fruit. The appearance was there, the promise was there, but the fruit was not there. Jesus had to know that the fig tree was barren. And the fig leaves then were hiding up or covering up the fact that there was no fruit there. There's nothing in this text to indicate that Jesus was thinking about the Garden of Eden. It's just one of those things, one of those things we see in Scripture. Are they connected? Well, the text doesn't connect it. But we do know that of all things it was, yeah, fig leaves, yeah. Fig leaves that Adam and Eve sewed together to make for themselves a covering. It's just one of those things. Did it have anything to do with what all was happening here? I don't know. It's just an interesting thing. Adam and Eve sewed fig leaves together to, sew, to cover up their sin. Now here's fig leaves on a fig tree. Should have had figs, but it didn't. Hiding up then its barrenness. Hiding its covering up. Hiding its barrenness. Now, we know what's going to happen. Of course, Jesus would say to the fig tree, well, nobody's ever going to eat fruit from you again. And he cursed the fig tree. And in verse 20 then, uh, the next day when they come back by it again, uh, lo and behold, that tree was dead. Dried up from the roots. The, cur the fig tree you cursed has withered away. It was dead. Sincerely dead. It, it was obviously dead. Even Roundup don't work that fast. Jesus cursed it. Next day, dried up from the roots. And the leaves were. Jesus told a parable in Luke chapter 13. I think that is related. And he told a parable about a fig tree. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? 
Isn't that an interesting expression? That fig tree is a waste to the ground it's planted in. But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well, but if not, after that you can cut it down. You see, the story Jesus told in Luke 13 was uh, just a story, a parable. A certain man, somebody had a fig tree. He went to it one year, next year, next year to get fruit. There was none. He said, cut it down. No, let's get it one more year, four years. (laughs) Uh, How long was Jesus preaching the gospel in that soil of Judea? How long was he here ministering, working miracles? Yeah, three years and then most of another one. We're going to give it some extra time. We're going to fertilize it for three and a half years. And Jesus fertilized that land of Israel with the fertile power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet still there was no fruit. He walks into the temple, looks around and leaves. You see, Israel and the entire temple worship system had fallen into a chronic state of unfruitfulness and spiritual barrenness. He had looked to them again and again for fruit. He has preached to them, but now this fig tree, not a a parable here. This is a very real fig tree, and it was very, really dead. In a day, dead and dried up and withered away. But it was still a symbol. Add in the fact that in Jesus' entire ministry, you know, one of the characteristics, one of the prophecies about Jesus was a a, a bruised reed he wouldn't break. Smoldering flax he wouldn't wouldn't quench. In his entire ministry, this is the only thing that's spoken of of something that Jesus spoke this way to it and destroyed it. He killed it. And that was a picture. It was designed to them to show them something. And that something was what he was seeing in the temple. Because where there was a symbolic curse, and that is this fig tree that had the leaves and it showed itself as being a place where there should be fruit, but there wasn't fruit and he had come to it again and again and again. And then he said, that's it. And then he goes to the temple. And that's where we see not the symbolic curse, but the real curse play out. As Jesus spoke of the curse then on the temple and on temple worship. This is on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. On Friday afternoon, that veil of the temple, the most holy part of the temple, the the holiest of all, that veil was going to be ripped wide open. Four days. So they came to Jerusalem, verse 15. Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the table of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. And 
would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? But you have made it a den of thieves. Now John told us in his gospel, it's in John chapter 2, if you want to look at it later today sometime. John told us that Jesus had done this once before. Early on in his ministry. But this is literally the last week. It's Monday. And Jesus goes into the temple, the house of God. My house. And Mark tells us four things that he did. First of all, he casts out them that sold and bought. The sacrificial system of the Jews required an animal to be offered as a blood sacrifice. It was Passover, it was time for them to offer a lamb, but they would consume part of it and then burn that themselves. There were sin offerings to be made, and there were sin offerings of all kind. If you were a wealthy person, you might bring a lamb, uh, or even a bullock, uh, a calf. If, if, if not, if you were a very poor person, you might buy a dove. A dove was permitted as a blood sacrifice. All of those animals had to be brought in, uh, they were then sold by the people who brought them. This is, this, this, this is better than an auction place. You know, I mean, that, all the cattle, all the sheep, all the doves, all of those animals brought in by somebody, sold then to the people who would sell them in the temple. So there were a lot of people buying. They brought in things to sell. There were people who were buying. And of course, the trade of the day were those animals' sacrifices. And Jesus run them all out. He got rid of them. So he cast out them that sold and bought in the temple. Number one. Just stop and think for a moment of all of those animals and sheep and cattle. And that was in my house. All of this in the temple was going on in the largest court of the temple, by the way, the lowest court of the temple. It was officially known as the court of all nations. It was commonly called the court of the Gentiles. It was a very large area. It could accommodate in Jesus' time in Herod's temple. It could accommodate thousands of people and no doubt it was packed. It was an important place. Because God had designated this to be a place of prayer for all people so that anybody from any nation on this planet could come to God's house and pray to God in this place. And they had filled it with animals, with stuff being bought and sold. So much so it was called the, the, the marketplace of Annas, who was the high priest, because the high priest was in on the whole thing. King Solomon prayed a prayer of dedication for the original temple in Jerusalem in 2 Chronicles chapter 6 and verse 32. Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but who comes from a far country, for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when they come and pray in this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel. 
And that they may know that this temple which I built is called by your name. Jesus ran them all out. Then he turned his attention to the money changers. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats, the Bible says, of the dove sellers. Uh, he, he turned over those places. Whether he turned all the doves loose or not, I don't know. What he did with all the animals, I don't know. But he did turn over their seats, the Bible says, and he turned over the tables of the money changer. Every Jewish man was required to pay a coin, a, a, a certain amount of money. It was called the temple tax. And they had to pay it in Jewish money. It could not be paid in that old filthy, nasty Gentile money. That stuff's defiled. No, you can't have that here. You've got to exchange it for good, solid Jewish money. And then you can pay your temple tax with that Jewish money. How many of you know that the exchange rate was pretty exorbitantly in favor of the people who were running this racket? Yeah, of course it was. Of course it was. Uh, common exchange rate, no matter what it was, uh, you could probably expect to pay three or four times for a shekel as you normally would, if not more than that. The money changers, they were crooks. And yes, according to history, yeah, the, the high priest was in on that too. They were the ones who required that it be paid in Jewish money. Doves were sold to those too poor to buy any other sacrifice. Doves could be bought for about a nickel in today's money. Well, that was from several years ago. It's probably more like a dollar today. But if you could pay, say, a dollar for a dove out anywhere, you know, out in Galilee, anywhere you go to buy one, it cost you a dollar. But what you bought in the temple was five or six times that much. So it was pretty much of a racket. Jesus shut it all down. And so he overturned the seats of the money changers. He stopped them who were bringing the animals into the court of all nations. He, he drove over the, or turned over uh, the tables of the money changers into that huge crowd of people. You can only imagine what that would have done. He stopped people from bringing in vessels. That was a constant thing because there was salt that had to be offered with those sacrifices in abundance. There was a huge amount of water. I mean, there was a constant possession of people bringing water up uh, from the pool of Siloam, from the Kidron Brook. It was a constant possession of water uh, who was coming through, all kinds of meals and grains that had to be brought in for the offerings. It was, it, there was a huge stream of people bringing all this stuff. And Jesus stopped them all. He stopped anybody from coming through the temple carrying a vessel. Which means that if, if you shut down those who buy and sell, if you got rid of all the animals, if, if, if you turned over the, the tables of the money changers, if you turned over uh, the, the seats of the sellers of doves, if you stopped anybody from bringing vessels through the temple, what did Jesus do? He shut that place down. Everything. Imagine that hustle and bustle. Everybody coming and going and all the... Everything. All of a sudden, it stopped. A place big enough for thousands stopped. 
You can't help but wonder with all the priests who were involved, all the Levites who were involved, all the buyers and sellers and money changers, you might think they would have stopped him. One man. One man. Stopped it all. Reminds me of that time in John 8 when they brought the woman to him caught in adultery and Jesus said, let the one who casts the first, let the one cast the first stone who has no sin. And the Bible says they all left. <laughs> Not staying around for that. They came to arrest him and he just walked out. Jesus did some extraordinary things in this temple and this is one of them. In fact, it's one of his greatest miracles, I'd say. It's an amazing thing. How did he do it? I don't know. One man. Was there something in his voice? There's not even any indication anywhere that there was any resistance. Nobody apparently even resisted. Nobody tried to stop him. There was a Roman garrison perched there where they could see into the temple court. Even the Romans didn't come to stop it. One man shut the whole place down. <laughs> Remember though, I told you there's four things. And the fourth one was, Jesus preached a sermon. All Mark gave us, pretty, for the most part, was his text. Verse 17, then he taught. Saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves. Those are two quotations from two Old Testament passages. One is Isaiah 56 and verse 6. Also the sons of the foreigner who joined themselves to the Lord to serve Him and to love the name of the Lord to be His servant. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them will I bring to my holy mountain. And make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The other passage, Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 11. Uh, that's where... God told them, you've made my house a den of robbers. Den of thieves in this text, same thing. Remember there, Jesus was preaching a sermon on the court of all nations. All we got was the text. I'd love to hear what Jesus had to say about my mountain, my house, my altar. We've got to think about another passage today. Luke 13 and 34. It's a famous passage where Jesus wept. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See? Your house is left to you desolate. It's Luke 13. 
And assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Sure enough, that passage, that prophecy that Jesus gave in Luke 13 has already been fulfilled. We saw that last week. So the time before Jesus came to the temple, this last time, the time before, what did he say to him? Your house is left unto you desolate. It is a deadly, desolate, and eternally dangerous thing when God's people turn God's house into their house. Your house, Jesus said. This is what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be my house. This is my mountain. My house. My altar. My place of worship. This is mine. But you've made it yours. And it's desolate. Outside of the gospel account where three passages refer to David entering the house of God, there are three passages in the New Testament that speak of the house of God. I don't have time to preach uh, in detail about all three of these passages. I'm just going to read them to you and make a couple of comments. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. Paul writing to Timothy saying, If I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. What is the house of God? You're in one. You're in one. New Testament church. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living wave which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw nigh with the true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and bodies washed with pure water. And yes, it's that same passage, Hebrews 10, 25, that tells us not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as matter some is. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. High priest is over the house of God. Who is that Jesus who makes it to where we can have a part in this house of God? Jesus does. What do we come here to do? To draw near to Him with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Then the last one is 1 Peter 4, 17. Three times. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? You see, Jesus went to the temple, to the heart of the Hebrew system of worship, the house of God. He went there because he knew if the temple was wrong, and it was wrong. It was because their leaders were wrong, and they were wrong. And therefore, the people of God were wrong, and they were all wrong. The whole nation was wrong. Why? Because they had turned God's house into their house. Their whole worship was wrong. It was. It was headed toward catastrophic judgment. 
In fact, before this day is over, we're going to see, Jesus, not this Sunday, I'm talking about this day in Jesus' life. Before that day is over, we're going to see him. Say to them, there will not be a stone left on the stone here. How long did it take for that to come to pass? About 40 years. But it was desolate right then because Jesus said it was. See, there's nothing more desolate than when the house of God is turned into our house. It doesn't mean that it'll be empty. It may be full of people. It certainly was then. A lot going on, a lot of sacrifices, a lot of praising, a lot of singing, a lot of shouting, a lot going on. Packed place. Remember, Jesus said that He did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. John chapter 12, verse 47. He came to give His life a ransom for many. Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. And yet we look at that fig tree dried up from the roots, dead, supernaturally dead. Its leaves gone. Jesus cursed it so it died. And it was all a picture of the temple, of Israel's worship on God's mountain. And what was once God's house, but now was theirs. Why would Jesus go to that place? Why would He spend so much time? Well... Remember what Jesus told the woman at the well in John chapter 4, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is seeking true worshipers in spirit and in truth. It's what He's always wanted. It's what He was looking for then. That was the fruit that He expected. The greatness of any nation is, you see, is not determined by its economic power or by its military might, whatever that might be. A nation's greatness is not determined by how equally all of its people share in whatever it is they think they ought to share in. It's not determined by how uh, social, what kind of social justice it might practice by its commitment to the comparative freedom of its people, by the greatness of its political structure and might. None of those things. The greatness of any nation is determined by the authenticity of its worship. That's a fact. Jesus came to the heart of Judaism, the center of the nation of Israel. And it was fruitless. There was nothing there for Him and it was supposed to all be about Him. My house shall be called of all peoples, of all nations, a house of prayer. But you've made it a den of thieves. Now, obviously, all of the, all of the, the things that were going on there, the buying and the selling, the exorbitant prices that was being charged, the fleecing of all the pilgrims, obviously, that, that, was, that was a big, big way that that place had become a house of thieves. But I wonder from God's perspective if the whole thing was not a house of thieves because they had taken what was God's house and made it theirs. If they hadn't have done that, then all that other thievery going on would have never happened. 
And I would be remiss today if I didn't also tell you, you know what else is called the temple in the New Testament? First Corinthians six nineteen. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. What else is called the temple in the New Testament? You and me. You and me. And so this morning we, we, we look at a couple of questions to finish out and kind of apply this to all of our lives. And a question I think we need to be carefully considering and one that's been burning in my heart all week. Have I taken God's house, God's church, and tried to make it about me and what I like, what I want to do? Have I treated God's house, the church, as a trivial matter? Something I can do when I want to and skip if I don't. I want to remind you, you just look in this passage and you see how seriously Jesus took my house. I want you to take a long look at a dried up fig tree. With all the pretenses and all the cover-ups stripped away. And the living Lord of glory saying, is there any fruit? And then have I taken God's house, my body, me, me, and made it all about living my life as I want to live it when in fact it's God's house and He bought it at a very, very high price. Have I made your house my house to do with what I want to do? Now, this message is a probing message, and I know, I, I know, listen, when Jesus preached this all those many years ago, he preached it on Monday, and they nailed him to a cross on Friday. And by the time that sermon was over, they were plotting his death. Some of you might not like what I preached today, but I'm just telling you, this is what the man said. This is what... Our Savior did. My house. My house. My house. Can a church completely turn away from being the house of God to where we don't come in anymore with the attitude and the mindset? What are we going to do today to please heaven's king? But instead, make it about what we want. Can we do that? Oh, yeah. Can we live our lives just to please ourselves? Yep, we can. Can we lose sight of the fact that, hey, when I bowed on my knee at that cross and asked that man to save me, and he did, he paid for me. And I'm not my own anymore because I belong to him. Can we lose sight? of that oh yes and I suggest to you today it's easier than we think
I'm going to do things a little different today. I'm not going to ask you to stand, but I am going to ask you to bow your head. And I want you to think about those two questions. We're not going to move. This ain't time to leave. If you're thinking, well, it's time to leave, don't. Don't. Whoever you are, don't. If you've got an emergency, I understand God does. Otherwise, just sit there for a minute. Bow your head. Ask yourself that question. Lord, have I been guilty of making your house, the house of God, the church, about me? God, have I been guilty of making your house, my life, my body, all about me? And if I have, then you do business with God. I can't do it for you. 1 Corinthians 11 said, if we judge ourselves, we'd not be judged. Let's take just a moment. I'm going to ask our praise team to come this time. Praise team. I want to ask you all to stand. It's still not time to leave. Because now, after considering that question, I want to ask you, is there a response you need to make? For some of you, it might be a response that you need to be saved. You need to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. And if you haven't done that, you're not a house of God. The Spirit of God doesn't dwell in you. You're on your own. But that's not all. You're facing the full onslaught of spiritual darkness that is out to destroy you and your family, drag you into an eternal place the Bible calls hell. You don't have to be that way. It doesn't have to happen. Because you can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins and ask Him to save you and He will. If you've done that, have you followed him in baptism? If you haven't, you need to. As a believer, not talking about something that was done to you when you were an infant. I'm talking about as you being a believer in Christ, professing your own faith in him through the waters of baptism. Have you done that? It'd be a great day to do it. How are we doing with the church? Do you need a church home? I, if you don't have one, you do. And I hope today you'll make that decision if you need to make it. You say, I don't know how. Well, you just walk down the aisle, come forward. I'll take care of everything with you from there. If we need to spend a little extra time, I'll spend it. So as our praise team is leading us then in this time of singing and reflection, this is your time to consider your response.